Hello and welcome to today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Monday, January the 22nd, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here is our first story. It's entitled, Sensational Salsas. North Sioux City Snack Shop Uses Small Cement Mixer to Create Gourmet Salsas. It's written by Earl Horlick of the Sioux City Journal. Tucked away in a strip mall, Chef Al's Snack Shop is not easy to find, but as soon as the doors open, you smell the enticing aroma of freshly cut onions, garlic, and tomatoes emanating from inside. This is where Chef Al's Sioux Salsa is made, one plastic container at a time. But if you're looking for Chef Al, well, he doesn't actually exist. Instead, Chef Al's Snack Shop, 554 River Drive, and Chef Al's Sioux Salsa, available at the store as well as at many High V locations, is the brainchild of James Alger. We make handmade salsa in small batches, and we wanted to sell it under a personal name, he explained. Since my last name is Alger, the salsa's brand became Chef Al's. Because it was made locally, we added Sioux to the title in order to make it complete. With that confusion out of the way, how did Alger get into the business? For as long as I can remember, I always wanted to be the boss, he said. Even when I was a little kid who worked in a movie theater, I imagined someday I'll own this place. During his teen years and all the way through college, Alger worked in a variety of restaurant kitchens. Even after graduating from college, he began working for several different Hy-Vee stores, including a more than six-year stint at the catering department at the Southern Hills location. It was there that Alger, along with his friend and co-worker, Daniel Nampha, came up with the recipe for the perfect pico de gallo. Whenever Daniel and I set up a taco station, the pico drew raves, Alger said. People would say, you should really market and sell this stuff. It would fly off the shelves. In 2022, Alger started his own business, creating a menu of specialty salsas that came in mild, medium, and hot. The ever-expanding list of flavors include Carolina Reaper, Mango Habanero, and Jalapeno Pineapple Garlic, among others. Every single Chef Al's Sioux Salsa is made in the same exacting way by both Alger and Nampha. Everyone thinks making salsa is easy, but it really is a process, Alger explained as he and Nampha began an, an assembly line of cutting and dicing fresh tomatoes, peppers, and garlic. So, what are some of the secrets behind Chef Al's Sioux Salsa brand? Well, Alger uses a brine to enhance the flavor of the salsa, as well as a few pinches of sugar to combat the bitter acidity of tomatoes. Then, he transfers all the ingredients into a cement mixer. Wait, a cement mixer? What is that used for? The concept of using a small cement mixer to blend salsa came to me one night, Alger said. A food processor has a tendency to mush up ingredients while making them too watery. A cement mixer operates at a much slower rate, allowing you to control the final product. The proof is in the salsa, which is bringing an increasing number of fans to Chef Al's snack shop, where a host of locally produced foods and gift items are also sold. Eventually, Alger would like to expand his business into a full-fledged catering operation. Until then, he is happy making his flavorful line of specialty salsas. When you want an easy snack, nothing satisfies your appetite like some chips and salsa, he said. And Chef Al Sioux Salsa and Chef Al Snack Shop 
is open 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. Tuesday through Saturday. It's located at 554 River Drive in North Sioux City. Our next article is entitled, Convention Center May See New Operator, Counsel to Weigh OVG 360 Management of Convention Center. It's written by Dolly Butts. OVG 360 could be managing the Sioux City Convention Center in addition to the Tyson Event Center and Orpheum Theater if the City Council amends an existing management agreement with the Philadelphia-based company on Monday. Earlier this month, the Council unanimously voted to terminate the City's agreement with Kinseth Hospitality Incorporated for the management and operation of the City-owned Convention Center. OVG 360, formerly Spectra, took over booking, marketing, staffing, and food and beverage service at the Tyson and Orpheum on January the 1st of 2018 after the council voted to privatize the Tyson's operations. City Manager Bob Padmore previously told the journal the council requested the contract with Kinseth be terminated based on some issues that have transpired at the convention center. He said the city intends to have a transition without any disruption to the facility. The city entered into the agreement with Kinseth on June the 5th of 2017, according to city documents. Kinseth also manages the adjoining 150-room courtyard by Marriott Hotel. After the vote to terminate Kinseth's contract, Mayor Bob Scott said the North Liberty, Iowa-based company made some improvements a little too late. I really struggled with why it had to come to this, he said during the council's January 8th meeting. You neglected to the place quite a bit, and only under the threat of losing this contract did you get some pretty good people. In August 2022, the council voted to extend a management agreement with OVG 360 for the, op- the management and operation of the Tyson and Orpheum for five years and potentially another five years after that. The 10,000-seat Tyson had been owned and run by the city since it opened in 2003. The Orpheum is independently owned and jointly operated with the city. Scott was the only council member who voted against the extension. At that time, he said he didn't think OVG 360 performed as well as it should. Under the terms of the proposed Second Amendment to the management agreement with OVG 360, the city would pay the company a monthly management fee of $5,000 to manage the convention center and a quantitative incentive for any reduction of operating subsidy below a $400,000 base subsidy. The city would also pay up to $10,000 for a qualitative incentive based upon customer feedback, quality of food, maintenance and cleanliness of the facility, and quality of events booked at the venue, according to city documents. If the city approves, or excuse me, if the council approves the proposed agreement, the documents state that OVG 360 will immediately begin transitioning to allow for a successful changeover in management with firms within 90 days. OVG 360 is a full-service venue management company specializing in sports, live entertainment, and hospitality. It has a portfolio of more than 300 arenas, stadiums, convention centers, performing arts centers, cultural institutions, and state fairs around the world. Our final article from the front page of the journal today, Milder Weather Forecast in Sioux City. Above average temperatures expected after two frosty weeks. It's written by Mason Doctor. 
After two weeks of blizzards and well below normal temperatures, this week promises slightly above average temperatures in Sioux City. Monday's high temperature in Sioux City is forecast at 32 degrees, followed by 33 degrees on Tuesday and 35 degrees on Wednesday, according to the National Weather Service in Sioux Falls. The average daytime high temperature this time of year is about 30 degrees. The observed high temperature a week ago, Monday, was 3 degrees below zero. We've kind of broken free of the weather system that's been causing a lot of our cold temperatures over the last two weeks, said Matthew Ducks, a meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Sioux Falls. Low temperatures have moderated considerably as well. Monday night's low temperature is forecast at 26 degrees, and Tuesday night's low is pegged at 31 degrees. The average low temperature for this time of year is about 10 degrees. Our next article is written by Matt Olberding, and it's entitled 2023, A Record Year for Corn, But Not Nebraska. Drought conditions that persisted for much of the year across the plains and Midwest, including in Nebraska, failed to hamper the nation's corn crop. Nationwide, 2023's crop turned out to be a big one, as farmers saw a record harvest of 177.3 bushels per acre, according to a U.S. Department of Agriculture report released earlier this month. The total harvests... Total bushels harvested also hit a record high of 15.3 billion, up 12 percent from 2022. In Nebraska, the USDA estimates that the 2023 corn crop at 1.73 billion bushels, up 19 percent from 2022, but lower than 2021 and nowhere near a record. Nebraska corn farmers' yield of 182 bushels per acre was up 17 bushels from 2022, while the 9.5 million harvested acres was up 8% from the previous year. However, both of those numbers were down from 2021. Drought was largely, largely responsible for a huge plunge in the corn crop in 2022, and while conditions improved over much of Nebraska last year, Extreme drought remains in some of the state's eastern counties, including three of its top corn-producing counties, Hamilton, Fillmore, and York. Drought receded in the western half of the state, leading to some pretty good yields for corn farmers there, said Kelly Brunkhorst, executive director of the Nebraska Corn Board. In eastern Nebraska, however, it was a tough year, he said. While irrigated crop acres did okay, dry land corn farmers in eastern Nebraska generally struggled. We did see a number of producers with crop insurance claims, Brunkhorst said. Overall, though, he called 2023 a solid year for corn farmers. Brunkhorst said corn farmers are eternal optimists and are hoping for a strong 2024, which could largely depend on whether drought recedes in eastern Nebraska. Hopefully, we'll get the benefit, beneficial moisture we need, he said. Thanks to lower commodity prices, farm income is forecast to drop nationally in 2023. USDA's November farm forecast projects total income of $151.1 billion, which would be a 17.4% decline from 2022. Commodity prices were softer in 2023 than those years in and immediately following the pandemic. 
While corn farmers across the country averaged more than $6 a bushel on corn in 2022, they got less than $5 on average in 2023. Nebraska, on the other hand, is likely to see a higher farm income in 2023, although that prediction comes with a caveat. Estimates released last fall by the Center for Agricultural Profitability at the University of Nebraska and the Rural and Farm Finance Policy Analysis Center at the University of Missouri put 2023 net farm income in the state at $7.8 billion, which would be 18% higher than 2022. That increase was largely driven by higher livestock prices. But while farm income is projected to be higher for the full year, the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City recently noted that lower commodity prices, combined with elevated production costs and other factors, has likely reduced farm income in 2023. A majority of bankers in Kansas and Nebraska noted that farm income had declined in the third quarter compared with a year ago. In an article from the Nation and World page, DeSantis ends campaign. Governor endorses Trump, calls Haley warmed over corporatism. This is written by Stephen Peoples of the Associated Press, and the dateline is Manchester, New Hampshire. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis suspended his Republican presidential campaign Sunday just before the New Hampshire primary and endorsed Donald Trump, ending a White House bid that failed to meet expectations that he would emerge as a serious challenger to the former president. It's clear to me that a majority of Republican primary voters want to give Donald Trump another chance, he said in a video posted on X, formerly known as Twitter. New Hampshire's first in the nation primary is Tuesday. DeSantis derided former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, long his closest rival for second place in the primary race, saying Republicans can't go back to the old Republican guard of yesteryear, a repackaged form of warmed-over corporatism that Nikki Haley represents. The ambitious big state governor entered the 2024 presidential contest with major advantages in his quest to take on Trump, and early primary polls suggested DeSantis was in a strong position to do just that. He and his allies amassed a political fortune well in excess of $100 million. Such advantages did not survive the reality of presidential politics in 2024, from a high-profile announcement that was plagued by technical glitches to constant upheavals to his staff and campaign strategy, DeSantis struggled to find his footing in the primary. He lost the Iowa caucuses, which he had vowed to win by 30 percentage points to Trump. And now, DeSantis's political future is in question after suspending his presidential bid after just one voting contest. The 45-year-old is determined is term limited as Florida governor. DeSantis was widely expected to be a serious Trump challenger. Acknowledging the threat, Trump went after the Florida governor viciously in the months leading up to DeSantis's May announcement. Yet many of DeSantis's problems may have been his own doing. Fueled by his dominant Florida re-election in 2022, DeSantis sidestepped tradition by announcing his presidential campaign on X in a conversation on the social media site with CEO Elon Musk. The site failed repeatedly during the conversation, making it all but impossible to hear his opening remarks as a presidential candidate. 
In the subsequent weeks and months, DeSantis struggled to connect with voters on a personal level under the unforgiving bright lights of the presidential stage. He irked some New Hampshire Republican officials in his campaign's inaugural visit to New Hampshire by declining to take questions from voters, as is tradition in the state. And later, uncomfortable interactions with voters in other states were caught on camera as well. More serious financial challenges emerged over the summer. By the end of July, DeSantis had laid off nearly 40 employees in a move designed to cut roughly one-third of his campaign payroll. Now we come to an article on the war in Ukraine, and it's entitled 27 Killed at Market, Gasport Hit. Attack near Donetsk also wounded 25, Russian officials report. This comes from the Associated Press, and the dateline is Kiev, Ukraine. Moscow-installed officials said Ukrainian shelling killed at least 27 people and wounded 25 on Sunday at a market on the outskirts of Donetsk, a Russian-occupied city in the eastern part of the country. Among the injured in the suburb of Tekstilchik, where two children were two children, said Denis Pushlin, the local leader. Ukrainian officials in Kyiv did not comment on the incident, and the claims could not be independently verified by the Associated Press. Both sides have increasingly relied on longer-range attacks this winter amid largely unchanged positions on the 930-mile front line in the nearly two-year-old war. The artillery shells that hit the area were fired from the area of Kukarkov and Krasnoyarsk. Krasnorikva to the west, Pushilin said, adding that emergency services responded to the scene. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres strongly condemns all attacks against civilians and civilian infrastructure, including today's shelling of the city of Donetsk in Ukraine, according to a UN spokesperson, adding that all such attacks are prohibited under international humanitarian law. Donetsk is one of four regions in Ukraine that Russia Russia annexed illegally in 2022, months after Moscow launched its full-scale invasion. Russia's foreign ministry also blamed Ukraine and described the strike as a terrorist attack. Also on Sunday, a fire broke out at a chemical transport terminal at Russia's Ust-Luga port following two explosions, regional officials said. Local media said the Baltic seaport, about 100 miles southwest of St. Petersburg, was attacked by Ukrainian drones, causing a gas tank to explode. The blaze was at a site run by Russia's second-largest natural gas producer, Novatek. In a statement to Russian media outlet RBC, the company blamed the fire on an external influence, saying operations at the port were paused. Yuri Zapolatsky, the head of the Kingisepp district on the Gulf of Finland, where the port is located, said there were no casualties, but the area was on high alert. News outlet Fontanka reported that two drones had been detected flying towards St. Petersburg on Sunday morning, but were redirected toward Kingisepp district. AP could not independently verify the reports. Russia's defense ministry did not report any drone activity in the Kinsep area in its daily briefing. It said that four Ukrainian drones had been downed in Russia's Solomsk region 
and uh, two more were shot down in the Oriole and Tula regions. Russian officials previously confirmed a Ukrainian drone had been downed in the, on the outskirts of St. Petersburg on Thursday. In fighting on the front line, Russia's defense ministry said Moscow's forces had taken control of the village of Krokmalny in Ukraine's Kharkiv region. Ukrainian forces confirmed the settlement had been occupied, but described its capture as temporary. Next, we have an article entitled, Palestinian Death Toll in Gaza Surpasses 25,000. The Palestinian death toll from the war between Israel and Hamas has soared past 25,000, the health ministry in the Gaza Strip said Sunday, while Israel announced the death of another hostage and appeared far from achieving its goals of freeing more than 100 others and crushing the militant group. The war's deaths, destruction, and displacement are without precedent in the decades-old Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The war has divided Israelis while the offensive threatens to ignite a wider conflict involving Iran-backed groups in Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and Yemen that support the Palestinians. Furious with the Israeli government and demanding the release of remaining hostages, relatives and others set up a tent camp outside Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's residence in Jerusalem and vowed to stay until a deal is reached. Netanyahu, in a defiant news statement, said he stressed in his conversation Friday with U.S. President Joe Biden that he rejects Hamas's demands for a ceasefire, Israeli forces' withdrawal, and the release of Palestinians held by Israel in exchange for the remaining hostages. Netanyahu also rejects calls from U.S., its closest ally, for post-war plans that would include a path to Palestinian statehood. UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez called the refusal to accept a two-state solution unacceptable. The Middle East is a tinderbox. We must do all we can to prevent conflict igniting across the region, Gutierrez added. Now some short articles under the digest heading. First, lawyer says Trump accusers won't go before jury. A, nude lo a lawyer for a writer who says Donald Trump sexually abused her in the 1990s and then defamed her while president in 2019 said Saturday that the infamous Access Hollywood tape and two women who accused Trump of abuse will not be put before a New York jury considering defamation damages. The revelation by attorney Roberta Kaplan, who represents advice columnist E. Jean Carroll, means that the Republican frontrunner in this year's presidential race could testify in Manhattan federal court as early as Monday, a day before the New Hampshire primary. The jury is considering whether Trump owes more to Carroll than the $5 million awarded to her last spring by another jury. Russia, North Korea plan further meetings. North Korea said Sunday that Russian President Vladimir Putin expressed his willingness to visit the North at an unspecified early date as the countries continue to align in the face of their separate, intensifying confrontations with the United States. The North Korean Foreign Ministry highlighted Putin's intent for a visit following North Korean Foreign Minister Cho Sun Hui's meeting with Putin and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov in Moscow last week. The ministry said in a statement published by state media that the two countries agreed to further strategic and tactical cooperation with Russia to establish a new multipolarized international order, a reference to their efforts to build a united fronts against Washington. 
Tens of thousands of people marched Sunday in cities across France to call on President Emmanuel Macron not to sign into law tough new legislation on immigration that they say bears the footprint of the far right and betrays French values. In a protest against the far right Sunday afternoon at the German city of Munich ended early due to safety concerns after about 100,000 people showed up, police said. The Federal Bureau of Land Management announced Friday it is looking to reduce recreational target shooting within Arizona's Sonoran Desert National Monument. The agency's proposed resource management plan amendment would allow target shooting on 5,295 acres and ban it on 480,496 acres. A caravan of some 500 migrants that departed northern Honduras in hopes of reaching the U.S. dissolved Sunday after crossing the border into Guatemala, the Guatemalan Migration Institute reported. And a Texas man pleaded guilty to kidnapping a 13-year-old girl who was rescued in Southern California when a passerby saw her hold up a Help Me sign in a parked car. Stephen Robert Sablin, age 62, of Claiborne, Texas, admitted in a plea agreement that he sexually assaulted the victim while driving her from Texas to California. The girl was rescued July the 9th. And three people died and three others were injured in an early morning fire at a home in east-central Pennsylvania on Sunday, authorities said. Officials in Lebanon County said crews were dispatched just after 1.30 a.m. to the home in North Londonbury Township near Palmyra. There are no opinions or obituaries in today's edition of the Sioux City Journal, so we'll read the On Gardening article, and it's entitled Looking Ahead to Mojave Magic. It's written by Norman Winter of the Tribune News Service. By the time you read this, the garden guy will be smack in the middle of the Arctic blast. How can this be? I'm still having drought nightmares. Such is the dilemma we face as gardeners, garden gurus, and garden guys. Planning, however, is one thing we can do once we've protected the plants the best we can. So I'm thinking Mojave, and while I do have a fascination with the desert, I am thinking Portulaca. Despite the rains and even some flooding, the U.S. drought monitor map is still showing red in the Mississippi River Valley, stretching from Louisiana to Miss and Mississippi and curving to Tennessee. It only makes sense to consider flowers that don't need babysitting every day during a long, hot summer, and this is certainly a strong suit of the Portuglaca umbriacola. This is where five colors of the varieties of the Mojave series rise to the top. They are not only extraordinarily beautiful in cuddler, but are filling out trophy cases with top performer awards. Mojave Red, which seems to glow in the landscape and containers, is a prime example as it has won 14 awards. You're probably wondering if the awards are all in desert-like climates. Well, a Perfect Score Award at LSU and leader of the pack at North Carolina State immediately put that thought to rest. Perhaps the awards are all in the South, right? That would be no. Awards in Minnesota, Penn State, and South Dakota State show the Mojave Red has had a strong showing across the country, including the University of Florida and Oregon State. The Mojave Portulacas 
all have what I consider to be an iridescent glow with their rich colors. Mojave fuchsia, yellow, and tangerine will all light up your garden with a riotous show of colors. They reach about 8 inches tall and have a 16-inch spread. This habit is perfect for the front of the border or tumbling over the rim of a container. The name Mojave might make you think, plant it in a desert-like condition and go off on a 30-day vacation. Instead, think about how they are drought-tolerant and can take the heat and humidity. They aren't hungry for fertilizer and won't need deheading, but or deadheading, excuse me, but with average moisture, they will be real troopers in the landscape. Mojave Yellow also took home some award-winning hardware. When you consider perfect score awards at the universities of Georgia, Minnesota, Tennessee, and Iowa State, and best of the species at Penn State, you know you are getting the absolute best. It is time to let your artistic nature come alive in your combinations. While the combinations are what gets the garden guy's heart pumping, you also know I am passionate about seeing flowers with pollinator activity. They will certainly bring in butterflies, but I was equally thrilled to see a metallic green bee on Mojave tangerine blossoms. So be prepared and have your camera ready for some prize-worthy clicks. So, as you are planning your combinations, whether containers, window boxes, or landscape borders, know there is one other location that begs for the Mojave, Portulaca. That area would be a rock garden, or spots within a rock wall, or crevices within a flagstone path. Here is hoping the Arctic blast will soon just be a memory, and we will all soon be trying new plants like the Mojave, Portulaca. You're listening to the Sioux City Journal on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. If you have any comments or concerns on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. Now we'll jump over to the sports page and we'll start with the NFL playoffs. Chiefs survive in Buffalo. Kelsey scores twice. Bill's game-tying field goal goes wide right. It's written by John Walro of the Associated Press, and the dateline is Orchard Park, New York. Travis Kelsey caught two touchdown passes from Patrick Mahomes, and the Kansas City Chiefs advanced to their sixth straight AFC championship game with a 27-24 win over the Buffalo Bills on Sunday night. Isaiah Pacheco scored the go-ahead touchdown on a four-yard run 40 seconds into the fourth quarter in a game during which the teams traded leads five times. The Chiefs clinched the win by running out the clock after Buffalo's Tyler Bass was wide right on a 44-yard field goal attempt with one minute 43 seconds remaining. The defending Super Bowl champion Chiefs moved on to Baltimore to face Lamar Jackson and the conference's top-seeded Ravens, who beat Houston 34-10 on Saturday. Kansas City is 0-1 in the playoffs against the Ravens, following a 30-7 loss in 2010 wildcard round. Baltimore defeated Kansas City 36-35 in their most recent regular season matchup in Week 2 of the 2021 season. There's no weakness there, Mahomes said of the Ravens. It's going to take our best effort. Defense, offense, special teams, they do it all. It's always a great challenge, and that stadium's going to be rocking, so we're excited for the challenge. 
Buffalo and Kansas City traded unlikely turnovers, with the Bills failing to convert on a fake punt when DeMar Hamlin was stopped for two yards on the fourth and five at Buffalo's 32. The Chiefs then gave the ball right back two plays later when McCall Hardman lost a fumble into the end zone for a touchback. The game wasn't decided until the Bills' final drive stalled at the Chief 26 when Allen threw a pair of incompletions leading to Bass's miss. It came a week after he had a field goal attempt blocked and also missed from 27 yards in a 31-17 win over Pittsburgh. I wish you wouldn't have been put in that situation, Allen said. You win as a team, you lose as a team. One play doesn't define a game. Kansas City has never lost in the divisional round since Mahomes took over as starter in 2018, and the Chiefs have now won five consecutive playoff games since a 27-24 overtime loss to Cincinnati in the AFC Championship game during the 2021 season. Lions 31, Buccaneers 23. Jared Goff threw two touchdown passes and host Detroit beat Tampa Bay, lifting the long-suffering franchise into the NFC Championship game for the first time in 32 years and just the second time in franchise history. The Lions won two playoff games in a season for the first time since 1957, the last year they won the NFL title. They will play at San Francisco, the NFC's top seed, next Sunday for a spot in the Super Bowl, a game they have never played in. Jamer Gibbs ran through a huge hole for a tie-breaking 31-yard touchdown early in the fourth quarter, and Goff made it a two-TD lead when he connected with Amon Ra St. Brown for a nine-yard score with six minutes and 22 seconds left. Baker Mayfield threw three touchdown passes for Tampa Bay, including a 16-yard toss to Mike Evans that got the Bucks within one score with 4 minutes 37 seconds left. Detroit couldn't run out the clock on offense, giving Tampa Bay one last chance, but Mayfield's pass over the middle was intercepted by linebacker Derek Barnes and the QB's second pick of the day. The Lions kneeled to run out the clock as their fans stood, screamed, and twirled white towels. Goff finished 30 of 43 for 287 yards and directed an efficient second-half offense for the Lions, who had long touchdown drives on three consecutive possessions. St. Brown had eight catches for 77 yards, and his TD catch capped a masterful 10-play 89-yard drive. In women's college basketball, Stanford's Vanderveer makes history. Tara Vanderveer became the all-time winningest coach in college basketball history Sunday, passing former Duke and Army coach Mike Krzyzewski with her 1,203rd career victory when number 8 Stanford beat Oregon State 65-56. At 70 years old and a head coach since the age of 24, Vanderveer celebrated on her team's home floor at Maples Pavilion with a couple dozen former players on hand to cheer the Hall of Fame coach on for yet another milestone in a decorated 45-year career filled with memorable accomplishments. This is a tremendous accomplishment for Tara Vanderveer, who was already one of the most accomplished coaches in the history of basketball, Shashevsky said in a statement. Vanderveer improved to 1,203 wins, 267 losses overall, and 1,051 wins and 216 losses over 38 seasons at Stanford. 
a 17-time Pac-12 Coach of the Year with five National Coach of the Year honors, Vanderveer has captured three NCAA titles with Stanford 1990, 1992, and 2021, and coached the 1996 U.S. Olympic team to a gold medal at the Atlanta Games during, during a year away from Stanford. In other women's college basketball, Iowa's Clark knocked down by Ohio State fan. Caitlin Clark said she was okay after she was accidentally knocked down by a fan running onto the court after number two Iowa was upset by number 18 Ohio State on Sunday in Columbus, Ohio. The Hawkeyes star was running off the court with her head down when a female fan, trying to film the on-court celebration, banged into Clark. She fell to the floor under one of the baskets as personnel and teammates rushed to her aid. In men's college basketball, top 25, Tulane 81, number 10, Memphis 79. Sion James scored a season-high 22 points, and Tulane handed the Tigers their second straight loss. The Green Wave outscored Memphis 22-13 in the final nine minutes. James hit a pivotal corner three-pointer that put Tulane up 77-75 with two minutes and 22 seconds left. Number number 14, Illinois, 86, Rutgers, 64. Justin Harmon scored 18 points, and Terrence Shannon Jr. added 16 in his return to lead Illinois over visiting Rutgers. In his first game back since the university was ordered Friday to lift his suspension, Shannon came off the bench and played 28 minutes for the Illini. He had four assists and made eight of ten shots from the free throw line. Number 23, Florida Atlantic, 112, UTSA, 103 in overtime. John L. Davis had 34 points, including three free throws to force overtime, and Florida Atlantic overcame a career-high 38 points by Jordan I.V. Curry to beat UTSA in San Antonio. In the NBA, Bonchero scores 20 as Magic turned back cold shooting heat. With its season-opening starting lineup back together for the first time in two and a half months, the Orlando Magic took their defense to another level Sunday night in a 105-87 victory over the Miami Heat. Paolo Banchero led five Orlando starters in double figures with 20 points, and the Magic held the Heat to a season-low point total. Bam Adebayo had 22 points and 11 rebounds for skidding Miami, which has lost three straight games. It felt good to have everyone back tonight, and it's good to see how effective our defense is when we have that unit in, said Markel Fultz, who had 12 points in the first in his first start since January the ninth, or excuse me, November the ninth. Jimmy Butler, who did not play in either of the Heat's victories over the Magic earlier this season, had 15 points. Tyler Harrow added 12 points for Miami, which shot 37.5% and had 14 turnovers. I feel like we just get stagnant. The biggest thing for us right now is we are in a rough patch and we have to dig ourselves out of it, Adebayo said. Clippers 125, Nets 114. Kawhi Leonard scored 14 of his 21 points over the final five minutes and Los Angeles overcame an 18-point deficit in the fourth quarter to beat visiting Brooklyn. The Clippers took their first lead on Leonard's basket with 2 minutes 50 seconds remaining. They closed with a 22-0 run, capped by Leonard's three-pointer from the corner, to win for the 10th time in 12 games. James Harden led Los Angeles with 24 points.
Nuggets 113, Wizards 104. Nikola Djokic scored 42 points to go along with 12 rebounds and 8 assists, and Denver beat host Washington. Djokic was 15 of 20 from the field and made 12 of 14 free throws. Tyus Jones had 15 points and 13 assists for the Wizards, who have lost four straight. Celtics 116, Rockets 107. Kristaps Porzingis scored 32 points, and Boston beat shorthanded Houston on the road. Porzingis was 11 of 20 from the field and 6 of 11 from three-point range. He added five blocks. Dylan Brooks led the Rockets with 25 points, hitting 5 of 15 from three. Suns 117, Pacers 110. Kevin Durant scored 40 points, Devin Booker had 26, and Phoenix beat visiting Indiana for its fifth straight victory. Bradley Beal added 25 points on 11-16 shooting. Buddy Heald led the the Pacers with 18 points. And Lakers 134, Trailblazers 110. D'Angelo Russell scored 34 points, LeBron James added 28, and host Los Angeles routed Portland to get back to 500. In NBA news, Hawks Young out with concussion. Hawks guard Trey Young was diagnosed with a concussion after getting elbowed in the face during a loss to the Cleveland Cavaliers and will be out indefinitely, the team announced Sunday. Young left Saturday night's game with 8 minutes and 43 seconds remaining after taking a charge from Cavaliers forward Isaac Okoro and accidentally getting elbowed. Young stayed on the court for a few minutes and walked back to the locker room with the Hawks trailing by 25 points. Young is averaging 26.9 points per game and is second in the league with 10.8 assists per game. As part of the league's concussion protocol, Young must show he is symptom-free before resuming basketball activities. There is no set timetable. And King's Herder gets renewed confidence. Sacramento King's center, Demonitus. Sabanis was answering a question about Kevin Herter's renewed sense of confidence after Tuesday's game in Phoenix when Herter walked by. It's great. It was exhausting cheering him up every after every play, Sabonis quipped, bringing a smile to Herter's face. Herter's struggles over the first half of the season were well documented, but suddenly he looks like his old self as the Kings head into Monday's home game against his former team, the Atlanta Hawks. The 25-year-old guard has averaged 22.3 points, 5 rebounds, and 3 assists over his last three games while shooting 62.5% from the field and 55.5% from beyond the arc. In the National Hockey League, Wings snap Bolts' 5-game win streak. Daniel Sprong scored the go-ahead goal in the second period, and the Detroit Red Wings defeated Tampa Bay 2-1 on Sunday night, snapping the Lightning's five-game winning streak. Lucas Raymond also scored for Detroit, which is 7-1-1 over the last nine games. Alex Lyon made 29 saves, including 19 in the third period. The Red Wings were playing the first of five consecutive home games before the All-Star break. It's a very dangerous team. I think we played really well tonight. Maybe one of the more complete games we played all season, Lyons said. Really difficult to come off a road trip emotionally and physically. The way that we responded tonight was awesome. Victor Hedman scored for the Lightning, and Nikita Kucherov added an assist for his 76th point. 
He's one point behind Colorado's Nathan McKinnon for the league lead. Andre Valsilvelski made 33 saves. The Lightning didn't have any power plays until the third period. The Red Wings managed to kill off all three of them. Islanders 3, Stars 2 in overtime. Bo Horvat scored 41 seconds into overtime. Ilya Sorokin finished with 41 saves, and New York beat visiting Dallas to win new coach Patrick Roy's debut. Alexander Romanoff and Houston Fashing also scored, and Noah Dobson had two assists. Roy was hired on Saturday to replace Lane Lambert after the Islanders went 0-3-1 on a four-game road trip. Wild 5, Hurricanes 2, Kirill Kaprizov scored three goals for his second career hat trick. Joel Erickson Eck had the tie-breaking goal in third period, and Minnesota beat host Carolina. Senators 5, Flyers 3. Tim Stutzl had a pair of goals, including an empty net, empty netter. Vladimir Tereshenko and Claudia Garou scored Claude Garou scored in the third period and a Tumwell rallied in Philadelphia. Rangers 5, Ducks 2. Artemi Panarin scored the go-ahead goal on a power play with 5 minutes 37 seconds remaining and New York rallied past host Anaheim. Adam Enrique scored twice for the Ducks. And Maple Leafs 3, Kraken 1. Austin Matthews and Nicholas Robertson scored early. Ilya Samsonov recorded 16 saves, and Toronto had handed host Seattle its fourth loss in a row. That pretty much wraps up the sports page, so I'll read some other articles, starting with this one entitled, Reducing Impacts, More Nuclear and Renewables, Less Meat and Methane Among Solutions Offered in Wake of Global's Hottest Year Ever. It's written by Jennifer McDermott of the Associated Press. Whenever there is bad news about climate change, people ask, what can be done? Recent news that 2023 shattered annual heat records will likely prompt such questions. The European Climate Agency said average global temperatures were 2.66 degrees Fahrenheit hotter than pre-industrial times. That's barely within the international goal countries agreed to in the 2015 Paris Climate Accord to avoid a world devastated by climate change. Scientists and energy experts have long laid out roadmaps, solutions, to reduce greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide and methane that are heating up the planet. And there's hope for the way forward, the International Energy Agency said in its World Energy Outlook for 2023. Led by solar and electric vehicles, investment in clean energy has risen by 40% since the year 2020. Proponents of nuclear power say ramping up that carbon-free source can replace fossil fuels now as a way of making electricity. Sharp cuts in methane emissions have become a global priority, as shown by the discussions at the United Nations COP28 climate talks in Dubai last month. Each person can also reduce their impact on the environment through the choices they make, whether that's saving energy at home, switching to an electric vehicle, reducing air travel, or eating less meat and more plant-based foods. Here's a closer look at these solutions. Renewables Rollout 
Nearly 200 countries agreed last month at COP28 to move away from fossil fuels by tripling the use of renewable energy by the year 2030. It was the first time they've made that crucial pledge to transition, but it will require new installations at double the current rate. UN Chief Antonio Gutierrez said a fossil fuel phase-out is inevitable. Scientists overwhelmingly agree the world needs to drastically cut the burning of coal, oil, and gas to limit global warming. That's because when fossil fuels are burned, carbon dioxide forms and is released. As an example, a 200-megawatt onshore wind project consisting of roughly 50 turbines on average avoids the emissions equivalent of taking 100,000 cars off the road or planting 20 million trees, according to the American Clean Power Association. The United States, which has lagged far behind Europe and Asia in building large offshore wind farms, now has two sending power to the grid that could fully open early this year. New Nuclear To control global warming, the IEA says global nuclear capacity needs to expand by about 3% each year. The global nuclear industry launched an initiative at COP28 for nations to pledge to triple nuclear energy by 2050. More than 20 already signed on, including the United States and the host of the talks, the United Arab Emirates. The World Nuclear Association says this form of electricity can be deployed on a large scale in time to combat climate change by directly replacing fossil fuel plants. Unlike fossil fuel-fired power plants, nuclear reactors do not produce carbon dioxide while operating. U.S. nuclear companies are also working on the next generation of reactors that are far smaller and cheaper than traditional ones. These small, modular reactors and micro-reactors in the future could power a community campus or military complex. Skeptics, however, caution that nuclear technology still comes with significant safety, security, and environmental risks that other low-carbon energy sources don't. Less methane. Methane, or natural gas, is an extraordinarily powerful greenhouse gas, more potent at trapping heat than carbon dioxide. It's responsible for about 30% of today's global warming. Many nations are prioritizing bringing down methane emissions as a crucial, quick way to curb further warming because it doesn't last as long as carbon dioxide in the atmosphere absorbing the sun's heat. The Biden administration last month issued a final rule aimed at reducing methane emissions, targeting the U.S. oil and natural gas industry for its role. Separately, 50 oil companies representing nearly half of global production pledged at COP28 to reach near-zero methane emissions and to stop wasting natural gas by burning it off by 2030. Personal Choices Every individual can make choices that protect the environment and slow climate change, according to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. The UN says start saving energy wherever possible, reduce heating and cooling, switch to LED light bulbs and energy-efficient electrical appliances, wash laundry in cold water, and hang things to dry. Improving a home's energy efficiency through better insulation or replacing an oil or gas furnace with an electric heat pump can reduce the equivalent of up to 900 kilograms of CO2 per year. 
Switching from a gasoline or diesel-powered car to an electric vehicle, taking fewer flights, and shifting from a diet reliant on meat to a vegetarian one can also make significant dents in one's carbon footprint, the UN said. Today's relationship advice column is entitled, Deciphering Texts Can Get Frustrating. It's written by Erica Etten. I recently got a text from a female client following a first date on a Friday night. According to her, the date went well. They got along, and it even ended with a kiss. The following day, around noon, she sent him a text thanking him for a wonderful evening. He replied by saying, Hey, anytime. I enjoyed it, too. Looking forward to seeing you again. She reacted to the message with a heart, as in used one of the iPhone reaction buttons. Sounds like everything is going smoothly, right? Well, two days later, they hadn't communicated again, which had her worried. Do I need to text him again? My client asked. My guy friends tell me to text him. My girlfriends tell me to wait for him to text. If he wants it bad enough, he will say something. I answered, he's a smart man. He knows to ask you out again. Let it lie. It's only been two days. When she asked how long she would be waiting for a text from him, I told her truthfully, I don't have an answer to that. Just live your life this week. He knows you like him. After a successful first date, it's understandable that you're eager to keep chatting with your match and meet again, excited to find out how strong the connection is. But it's important to remember that people have busy lives, work, family, friends, pets, social plans. In this case, it was also the weekend. The guy may 100% intend to ask her out on a second date. In fact, he said as much by messaging that he's looking forward to seeing her again, which he probably wouldn't have said if it weren't true. But in his own time, no matter how much we want instant gratification, not everyone operates on the same timeline. And if she is that interested, she can certainly ask him out if she likes. Testing, texting has completely changed how people communicate, and this applies to dating as well. Take a look around the internet, and you'll find there is no shortage of people overanalyzing what a certain emoji means, nitpicking how long it took someone to respond, or dissecting punctuation marks. Seriously, I've found that people have different texting styles, so none of these things may actually be indicative of whether there's a connection. Tone and personality can often also get lost in translation over text, so always try to reread your messages and see if anything can be misinterpreted. Likewise, if someone sends you a note that seems off, maybe ask them to clarify what they mean. It can't hurt to clear things up, clear things up by saying, I can't tell what you mean. Whether you're communicating over text, by phone call, or face-to-face, it often comes down to this. If someone says they're looking forward to seeing you again, or alternatively, that they think you should go your separate ways, you have to believe them. Sure, things come up. Sometimes people lie in a misguided effort to protect your feelings. But in the long run, there's no point in driving yourself nuts over someone if they don't reciprocate the same effort that you're investing. And now we come to Ask Amy. Grandson's clothing can't travel between homes. Dear Amy, I have an 18-year-old grandson, a senior in high school, who divides his time living with each of his parents half-time. He and I were out shopping at Christmas time, and it seemed that he was in need of clothes. He was very happy to find some clothes that fit and looked good on him, which he appreciated. His father established that the clothes that came from one parent needed to stay with that parent. 
This applied to, how, to his new clothes, too. He was not allowed to take these clothes to his father's house unless they were intended to stay at his father's house and was not allowed to enjoy them at his mother's house. I wanted him to feel good about himself and agreed to purchase extra clothes so he could have new clothes at both houses. I guess I am writing because I think that this arrangement is very detrimental to any child-slash-teenager caught between two households. Next year, he will be going away to college. Legally, I think, he can decide at a certain age as to where he would like to live. I don't think he is strong enough to choose one parent over the other. I am just sorry he is in this situation. Going forward, I am wondering how he will keep track of which clothes came from which house. Do you have any thoughts? Signed, Concerned Grandparent. Dear Concerned, keeping track of clothing is a common problem with divorced parents who share custody. Some parents have the frustrating experience of their kids' clothes and shoes disappearing into a black hole while at the other parent's home. Savvy parents label clothing and help their children to organize and account for their clothing when moving to the other home. This sounds exhausting and frustrating for everyone, but especially for the child who ultimately carries his physical and emotional burden back and forth from house to house. You were kind and thoughtful to get two sets of clothes for him. Insisting on this strict clothing split between an, with an older teen seems needlessly controlling and almost impossible to strictly maintain. At 18, your grandson is legally an adult, and I assume he could graduate from this arrangement if he chose to. His parents' legal custody agreement must be followed. Regardless, it might be best for him to stick it out until he graduates from high school. I hope he chooses to go away for college, where he will learn a new set of life skills without the need to organize his life in this way and shuttle between two sets of parents. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Monday, January the 22nd, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the blog.